Last year, in the Wall Street Journal, former Reagan speechwriter Peggy Noonan opined that conservative Bush supporters have felt like battered wives. If you don't like the dramatic increases in federal spending, too bad. If you don't like the intrusion of big government in your lives, too bad. If you think the war in Iraq was a mistake or has been mishandled, too bad. Noonan's words were an emperor has no clothes moment for a number of conservatives who have been reluctant to criticize President Bush openly. In this talk, I propose to look into why prominent conservative opinion leaders began distancing themselves from the 43rd president well before Election Day 2008 and even before Election Day 2004. We will get to their divorce from Bush in a moment. First order of business is to provide a little bit of context to explain how it happens in American history that opinion leaders who are originally supportive of a president eventually break with him. There are at least four things that can contribute to bringing about these messy divorces. First, Sir Isaiah Berlin observed that there has always been an inherent tension between the intellectual and political classes. The trouble with academics and commentators is that they care more about whether ideas are interesting rather than whether they are true. Politicians live by ideas just as much as professional thinkers do, but they can't afford the luxury of entertaining ideas that are merely interesting. They have to work with a small number of ideas that happen to be true and an even smaller number that happen to be applicable to real life. In academic life, false ideas are merely false and useless ones can be fun to play with, but in political life, false ideas can ruin the lives of millions and useless ones can waste precious resources. An intellectual's responsibility for his ideas is to follow their consequences wherever they may lead. A politician's responsibility is to master those consequences and prevent them from doing harm. Second, our winner-take-all system can aggravate this tension by encouraging compromise. We are taught we have a two-party system that tends to suppress third parties, but in most elections, uh, what we really see through the whole process is that what has evolved over the past hundred years is a four-party system. Gary Gregg explains this well. You see it at work, for example, in presidential primaries. Take 1992. The moderate Republican Party was represented by George H.W. Bush. The conservative Republican Party was represented by Pat Buchanan. The moderate Democratic Party was represented by Bill Clinton. And the liberal Democratic Party was represented by Governor Moonbeam, Jerry Brown. Now, the winner-take-all system established by the Electoral College encourages the moderates and true believers in the same party to merge in order to win elections. As we see repeatedly, ideas are moderated, compromised, and amended in this merging process. The merging often leads, however, to dissatisfaction among opinion leaders, and when the true believers among them become frustrated by the compromises of the president, they face a tough choice. Either stay at home and suffer, or get a divorce. At key turns in American history, opinion leaders have served their president papers. That leads to the third contributing factor in political divorces, and that's precedent. On numerous occasions, the true believers in a party have split with their president because there were too many compromises, too many violations of principle. SMU political scientist Joseph Kobilka has traced these breaks going back centuries, in fact. Indeed, he calls the Declaration of Independence the culmination of the petitioning process. These forerunners actually go all the way back to Magna Carta and the petition of right that Parliament presented to King Charles I in 1628. 
in North America in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. This petition tradition was carried forward by able lawyers and revolutionaries, James Otis, John Dickinson, Sam Adams, James Wilson, Thomas Jefferson, all asserting the rights of British subjects in North America against the arbitrary rule of Parliament and King. American writers and leaders had no trouble carrying on the tradition they inherited from Britain. Jefferson famously, if surreptitiously, broke with the indispensable man himself, George Washington, whom he had served as Secretary of State. A few years later, high Federalists egged on by Alexander Hamilton broke with John Adams, their sitting president. And this critical divorce occurred in the months leading up to the election of 1800 when the nation was in a quasi-war with France and arguably it was one of the factors that led to a change in the party occupying the White House. You take the last half century, the most famous divorce between president and opinion leaders of his party occurred in 1968 when prominent Democrats broke with LBJ over the conduct of the Vietnam War. That split, too, contributed to a change in the party that would win the White House that year. The fourth factor that explains these divorces, look at the nature of political movements. Not one of them in our pluralistic society is monolithic. Not greens, not progressives, not liberals, not conservatives. This last is a factious coalition. It makes the word conservative hard to define. Russell Kirk argued that Classical conservatism is not even an ideology. It's a temperament. In the American context, the conservative tries to carry forward the culture and institutions that maintain a justly ordered freedom. This traditionalist conception of conservatism is hardly anything in common with the libertarian emphasis on self-interested individuals in the free market or with the neocons' ideological mission to expand America's power and freedom around the globe. In post-war World War II America, it took the tireless efforts of two great unifiers to turn conservatism into anything resembling a movement. Starting in 1955, William F. Buckley Jr. brought together the anti-communists, the libertarians, and the Roman and Anglo-Catholics in the pages of National Review, while in 1980, Ronald Reagan added Protestant evangelicals and Jewish neoconservatives to make a potent political coalition. This is the coalition, and though it has shown many strains that George W. Bush inherited in 2000 when he became 43rd President of the United States. Okay, to sum up the argument thus far, at least four factors, the inherent tension between intellectuals and politicians, our winner-take-all electoral college system, the Anglo-American tradition of dissent, and factious movements all bear on the high-profile divorce that took place between prominent conservative opinion leaders, and President George W. Bush. Now, it must be said, many serious conservative scholars and opinion leaders have remained supportive of President Bush to the end. Not that they are uncritical, but overall they have supported the administration's decisions. You take Charles Krauthammer, Victor Davis Hanson, Bill Kristol, Max Boot, Fred Barnes. Think AEI and the Weekly Standard. Barnes, who is executive editor of the Weekly Standard, consistently portrays the president in sympathetic terms. Quote, Bush is a president who leads. He has the temperament of a self-assured Texas male. He believes the role of conservative president is to be proactive, bold, energetic, optimistic. For Bush, clashes with conservatives are inevitable. 
given his rebel-in-chief style, President Bush is willing to take on fights with his conservative base, despite being a true but unorthodox conservative himself. Close quote. Now, conservatives who continue to support Bush to the end believe that one of the reasons Barack Obama crushed John McCain is that the administration was hurt by its own success. There were no significant terrorist attacks on U.S. soil after 9-11. The surge in Iraq worked. These were the dogs that didn't bark. Accordingly, when the economic crisis overwhelmed national security concerns, Bush got the blame. It wasn't the GOP's year. And this is typical of what happens to parties during recessions. They either lose seats in Congress and or uh, off in the White House. But as I hope to show, numerous conservative opinion leaders turned on the Bush presidency before the recession and with a vengeance. They blamed Bush for deconstructing a coalition that was five decades in the building. To understand better how this divorce between the conservative opinion leaders and the president came about, I surveyed members of one of the nation's most prominent conservative organizations, the Philadelphia Society, and reviewed the books, articles, and op-eds that conservatives have generated during the past decade. A large majority of the conservatives I surveyed and studied split with the Bush administration. I'm not talking about the minority. A large majority split. Even if they liked George W. Bush personally, they decided to split publicly. Moreover, a surprising number of these conservatives decided to vote for Barack Obama. Let's look at the courtship. What a turnaround from eight to ten years ago. If you look at the way conservatives wooed George W. Bush after he won re-election as Texas governor in 1998, few would have anticipated the ugly divorce to come. His record as governor had been impressive. In his bid for a second term, he gathered broad support from Democrats, including the Democratic lieutenant governor, and on election day carried 239 of Texas's 254 counties. He also appealed to Hispanics, winning almost 50% of the Hispanic vote in Texas. Conservatives observed that all of Bill Clinton's trips to Texas to support the Democratic challenger came to naught. So given Bush's father, his record as governor, his appeal to conservatives, Bush quickly became a serious contender for the White House. I personally witnessed this when I was uh, working for Governor John Engler. Uh, Governor Engler at that time was head of the Republican Governors Association, and he went out on a mission to get all of the Republican governors behind one candidate in 2000, George W. Bush, so that they could beat Al Gore. Now let's look at the marriage. During the campaign, Governor Bush styled himself a compassionate conservative. The marriage between Bush and movement conservatives occurred in August 2000 at the nominating convention in Philadelphia. His acceptance struck Burkean chords pleasing to conservative ears. The Palace Guard at National Review reported that on the major issues, Bush was impeccably conservative. Although election 2000 was one of the most controversial in U.S. history, the counting I want you to be aware of is that Bush received 11 million more votes than Bob Dole had in 1996. There was a genuine appeal to the conservative base. His first inaugural address struck numerous conservative themes, and his first days and weeks in office were full of substantive acts that appealed to conservatives. For example, on his first day in office, 
He restored the controversial Mexico City policy that outlaws using U.S. taxpayer funds to pay for abortions overseas. And soon after that, he established the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. Bush would go on to experience two honeymoons in 2001. First was rather modest, as Bush enjoyed approval ratings in the mid-50s among the general public. Just as his numbers were starting to sag a bit, 9-11 happened. This tragedy led to Bush's second honeymoon when his job approval ratings soared to 80 and 90 percent. With the prodding of Karl Rove, the president threw red meat at conservatives in subsequent months and years, cutting taxes, invading Iraq, intervening in the Terry Schiavo case. As the first post-9-11 president, Bush looked, acted, and talked like a philosophical conservative for the durable Republican majority to come. And yet there was an end to the honeymoon. Between the two honeymoons, already there were grumblings of discontent. Just six months into the administration, libertarians were criticizing Bush's protectionist policies towards steel. Small government conservatives were criticizing ongoing agricultural subsidies. And cultural conservatives and national security conservatives were criticizing immigration policy. As events unfolded, the cacophony of voices critical of Bush rose to ever higher decibels. You are well familiar with the litany. Protests against the further uh, federalization of education and no child left behind, against the huge expansion of Medicare, against the misuse of intelligence and a fool's errand for WMD, against the prosecution of the war in Iraq, against parts of the Patriot Act, against the bungled response to Hurricane Katrina, against the attempt to nominate Harriet Myers, against the vice president whose chief of staff acted above the law. As you know, the list goes on and on. As events unfolded, major conservative responses took shape against the president. I only have time to look at three of them. Let's look at the divorce by fiscal conservatives. One of the earliest, most vociferous criticisms leveled against Bush came from fiscal conservatives such as George Will, Dick Armey, Grover Norquist, Steve Moore. Their standard bearer, however, could have been Bruce Bartlett. Bartlett is an economist with impeccable conservative credentials. He's an early supply cider, for example. He, in fact, he worked for Ron Paul when he was a congressman back in the 1970s. And then he joined the Reagan administration in its first year and helped craft those famous tax cuts of 1981. Also, during that first year of Reagan's presidency, he authored a book called Reaganomics, one of the Wall Street Journal's best business books of the year. Now fast forward two decades. Although he denies it now, Bartlett had high hopes for George W. Bush back in 2001, and he, in fact, he helped craft Bush's early tax cuts. But when the 43rd president tried to woo moderates by adopting parts of the liberal agenda, Bartlett essentially quit the White House. And moreover, in 2005, he lost his job at a free market think tank for openly criticizing Bush. With some spare time on his hands, he penned a polemic published by Doubleday called Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy. And chapter one starts with these words, I know conservatives and George W. Bush is no conservative. What angered Bartlett was Bush's willingness to expand rather than contract great society programs. And Exhibit A, of course, was the Medicare prescription benefit that the president rammed through Congress in November 
2003. LBJ could not have been prouder. Bush's fiscal recklessness caused both the annual deficit and national debt to balloon to all-time highs, as recently reported. Quote, on the day President Bush took office, the national debt stood at $5.7 trillion. The latest number from the Treasury Department shows the national debt now stands at more than $9.8 trillion. That's a 71.9% increase on Mr. Bush's watch, the biggest increase under any president in U.S. history. The divorce by the fiscal conservatives. Now let's look at the divorce by a second group, the anti-imperialists, the foreign policy conservatives. George W. Bush has been the longest-serving wartime commander-in-chief in American history, by far. He leaves office still fighting two unresolved wars and having lowered American prestige around the world. That was bound to put strain on the conservative coalition. As the war in Iraq went south, a vociferous group of conservative critics emerged that included George Will, Brent Scowcroft, William F. Buckley, and Jeffrey Hart. Variously called realists or anti-imperialists, these conservatives thoroughly reject Wilsonian idealism. In its place, they counsel prudence, moderation, restraint. They sound a bit like the Taft Republicans of old or Burke in his reflections on the revolution in France. And they sneer at the neocon, Ken Edelman, who famously predicted in the pages of the Washington Post, Iraq will be a cakewalk. One of the standard bearers of the anti-imperialists is Andrew Basevich. A self-described Catholic conservative, Basevich is a West Point graduate, a colonel in the Army, a Princeton PhD, a professor of international relations at Boston U, and a grieving dad. He grieves because his 27-year-old son, his namesake, was killed by an improvised explosive device in Salah ad-Din province in Iraq. Basevich's books are hard-hitting critiques of neoconservative foreign policy. The titles are revealing. In 2002, he came out with American Empire, The Realities and Consequences of U.S. Diplomacy. 2005 saw the publication of The New American Militarism, How Americans Are Seduced by War. 2007, The Long War. And then earlier this year, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism. Notes the Boston Globe. Basevich has been a persistent vocal critic of the U.S. occupation of Iraq, calling the conflict a catastrophic failure. This from a military man, remember, a West Point grad, a self-described conservative, cultural and Catholic conservative. In March 2007, he described George W. Bush's endorsement of such preventive wars as immoral, illicit, and imprudent. Let's look at the third area, divorced by the cultural conservatives. This third group of Bush critics are the cultural conservatives, among whom are Christopher Buckley, P.J. O'Rourke, Pat Buchanan, Jeffrey Hart. Hart is particularly interesting. He taught English at Dartmouth for four decades, and during that same period, he was a regular contributor to National Review. He wrote speeches for Ronald Reagan as, a, even, as he was a prof. He characterizes himself as a an updated Burkean. He recently quipped, many Republicans must feel like that legendary man at the bar on the Titanic, watching the iceberg slide, outside, slide by outside a porthole. He remarked, 
I asked for ice, but this is too much. Republicans voted for a Republican and got George W. Bush, but his Republican Party is unrecognizable as the party we have known. Close quote. At the core of Hart's criticism is Bush's use of evangelical piety to disguise a radical agenda. Hart wrote, quote, The Bush presidency often is called conservative, but this is a mistake. It is populist. It is radical and its principal energies have roots in American history, and those roots are not conservative. He elaborated, like the founders who were part of the Whig gentry, I loathe populism. This guy really does sound like a conservative, doesn't he? Most especially in the form of populist religion, that is, the current pestiferous Bible-banging evangelicals, whom I regard as organized ignorance, a menace to public health, to science, to medicine, to serious Western religion, to intellect, and indeed to sanity. Evangelicalism driven by emotion is not creedal, is thoroughly erratic, and by its very nature cannot be conservative. In fact, cultural conservatives mockingly prayed that George W. Bush would be born again, this time as a true conservative. Okay, in conclusion, let's look at either what time will show to be an affair to remember or a remarriage. It's one thing to divorce. It's another to drive someone to marry the opposition. In our Republican form of government, one principal way we ratify a president's leadership is to elect his successor. So, Truman ratified FDR, Johnson ratified Kennedy, George H.W. Bush ratified Reagan. In 2008, not only did John McCain not ratify George W. Bush, he did not even want to be considered Bush's successor, preferring instead to link himself to Ronald Reagan. The prominent conservatives who threw their support to Barack Obama include some of the names we've already looked at, Bruce Bartlett, Andrew Bacevich, Jeffrey Hart, and add to these, Doug Kamick, Andrew Sullivan, Ken Duberstein, Kathleen Parker, Anthony Sullivan, Christopher Buckley. With justification, some add to this list, Bush's former Secretary of State, Colin Powell, and the reformed neocon, Francis Fukuyama. The pedigree, influence, and intellectual firepower of the Obamacons suggest that Bush contributed mightily to deconstructing, de deconstructing an edgy coalition that Buckley and Reagan built up. Certainly from these conservatives' perspective, he did. Of course, it was a much more complex time had moved on from when that coalition had been formed. But here's what I want to leave you with. There's nothing new or shocking in this turn of events. The conservatives who repudiated Bush and voted for Obama in 2008 were actually doing a very American thing, even a very conservative thing. We forget that Russell Kirk backed Eugene McCarthy back in 1968 and that National Review did not want to support Richard Dixon in 1960 or 1972. Then, as now, prominent conservatives were following a hallowed tradition going all the way back to the American Revolution and before to divorce for the sake of principle rather than to suffer for the sake of politics.
Well, thank you, gentlemen, for those great uh, three concluding presentations. Uh, we're running against the, the, the time limit here, but if there's a few questions, I'm sure we can entertain those. You know, we, I think, I didn't realize, we have run over. Uh, if there's one burning question, if you think a, does anybody have a burning question to ask? Otherwise, I want to respect the time of people who came here. No questions? Okay, one question. Mr. Mayor. Dr. Nelson, I was a little surprised in your wonderful remarks not to see any connection made between Carl Rome and Cheney. Yet I recall that in the Valerie Plain affair, Rome avoided the same trouble. But from your research, it seems likely to me, without having that research, these two people had an alignment of cause there that would have had them working together. Have you got anything to support that? Or I don't, um, as far as the specific question. In general, uh, Cheney's w w was generally indifferent to the work that Rove was doing. Um, Rove was, was, was trying to advance and safeguard President Bush's political interests. Cheney was, was, wanted to be helpful in certainly in, in, uh, in, in helping uh, the Republican Party regain control of Congress in the 2002 midterm and then, of course, help President Bush get reelected in 2004. But Cheney was somebody, again, I think, because, uh, because of his lack of personal political ambition for, for subsequent office and because of his, his deep concern about public policy and about restoring what he saw as, as the rightful authority of the presidency. I don't think Cheney and, 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 and Rove um, worked as closely together as Cheney did with others in the administration who, were, who, who shared his, his, his primary interests. Very good question. Um, but even, even if the answer was yes to, the, to your specific question, I don't think it would signify much beyond that about the Cheney vice presidency. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to conclude now. I want to thank my two distinguished colleagues for uh, being with me on this panel. Uh, thank you both, gentlemen. I want to thank all of the participants, uh, starting from last night when uh, Rufus Fears addressed us, all the way uh, through today. I wish Casey Pipes were still here. Thank you all. It, uh, I think it was a tremendously successful conference. And one of the reasons it was successful also is because of you, the audience who came. You came prepared and asked thoughtful questions. I appreciate that very much. Uh, we will reconvene, actually, in Washington, D.C., at the Library of Congress, uh, on December 11th, so if you want a rerun, come to Washington that week for December 11th and 12th. Thank you very much. We are adjourned.